What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this rip with Michael Tracy. It was a really good one. Nuanced conversation around triggering topics. We need more of it. Michael's providing it, I think. If you're not subscribed to a Substack, I think you should be. Definitely follow him on Twitter at mtracy. It's T-R-A-C-E-Y. Great, great talk. I think we're going to do more of these. This rip was brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital, right down the hall from me here at the Bitcoin Commons in Austin. They're working on products to help you uh, secure your Bitcoin and leverage financial services with your Bitcoin using Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties. Their Vault product um, is a two or three multi-sig of which you hold two keys. Unchained holds a third key. You always have custody of your keys uh, or excuse me, you, you, if you have custody of your keys, you're going to have full control over your Bitcoin. You can move your Bitcoin out of the vault whenever you please. Uh, they have an IRA product that they they rolled out earlier this year, or excuse me, late last year. Uh, they have a lending desk allows you to use your Bitcoin as collateral to get USD liquidity, same day liquidity. Uh, they're building out a suite of products for Bitcoiners using Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties. Okay. If the IRA product, you can hold your own keys. Be a multi-sig. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, they have a white glove concierge service. It's going to take you from zero to having a thousand cuck bucks worth of sats in a personal vault. If you want that, tell them the TFTC sent you. You're going to get $50 off that package. Uh, again, it's a white glove concierge service. They're going to hold your hand throughout the whole process. Go check out everything Unchained has going on has going on at unchained.com. This group was also brought, brought to you by our good friends at Brains. Give me your brains. Brains, incredible team. Team behind Slush Pool, oldest Bitcoin mining pool in existence. They're the team behind Brains OS Plus firmware, which allows you to stack more sats with your ASIC because it allows you to produce more hashes, which are imperative to producing sats or producing blocks that reward you sats for participating in that block production. Uh, if you have an ASIC and you're not running Brains OS Plus firmware on it, you're leaving sats on the table. It's as simple as that. Uh, go to Brains, B-R-A-I-I-N-S dot com. Check out the Brains OS Plus firmware page and check which ASICs it's compatible with. They just most recently launched. The S19 series should all be uh, Brains OS Plus compatible. What's Miners? Apparently very close. They've been saying that for quite some time now. Hey, I'm sorry guys. I'm going to dig in until it comes. I'm a What's Miner user. I want that fucking firmware. Edward. It's me telling you to like start whipping the devs. I'm kidding. We don't, you know, we don't like violence here at TFTC. Uh, they've got incredible uh, data, mining data page as well. Insights.brains.com. Go check it all out. Brains. That's B-R-A-I-I-I-I-N-S.com. This one was also brought to you by our good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. Hoddle Hoddle is here to bring you a peer-to-peer -peer lending platform with no KYC, no AML. It also leverages Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties. The way it works is you put your Bitcoin up as collateral in a two or three multi-sig escrow account. You hold one key, your counterparty holds one key, and HODL HODL holds the third key. You do not have control of your Bitcoin. However, since you hold one key, 
you have visibility into the wallet so that you can ensure that your sats are not being rehypothecated throughout the duration of the loan. As long as you're paying that loan back, you're going to get your sats back at the end of the day. If you have stable coins laying around, you want to issue them, uh, you, you want to put them to work to get some yield, you enter the other side of that marketplace, you lend out your stable coins to Bitcoiners looking for liquidity, they pay you back what you gave them plus interest, which turns in, which is yield on your stable coins. So go check all this out at lend.hodlhodl.com, L-E-N-D.H-O-D-L-H-O-D-L.com. Again, no KYC, no AML, peer-to-peer. They're building an incredible product at Hoddle Hoddle. Shout out to the team there. Last but not least, this rip is brought to you by our good friends at the Bitcoin 2022 conference. It's a week away, literally one week away from today in Miami, Florida, April 6th to 9th. It's going to be a massive event. People coming in from all over the world. Bigger than Live Aid. Bigger than the World's Fair. You got industry day on day one. Get your whale pass. Want to like if you're in the industry and you want to elbow up with big big hitters in the space. Days two and three. Seventh and the eighth. General conference days. Going to be a lot of talks. So for 400 speakers, many CEOs, a president, congressmen, senators, podcasters named Marty Bent. Matt O'Dell. We're going to be there. Day four, music fest, comedy fest. A lot of big acts. <laughs> you trying to get cake thrown on you? You like cake? Steve Aoki's going to be there. He'll be throwing fucking cake on you guys. I don't know why anybody would subject themselves to that. It's very degrading. But if you like that sort of stuff, it's going to be available to you. Day four at the Bitcoin conference. Use the code TFTC if you haven't bought a ticket yet. You're going to get 10% off. Go to b.tc slash conference and enjoy this rip with Michael Tracy. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. Probably should be. Michael Tracy, the adults in the yes. room are trying to drive us to World War III. What the hell is going on? Well, I guess we need to question the concept of adulthood right it's uh no it's, yeah i mean you're right it's uh adults in the room is sort of this cliched shorthand for the seasoned professionals who we can supposedly supposedly rest assured will take the reins when somebody who's a little too crazy or uncontrollable gets into power and they also seem to be the types of fellas who are invariably in favor of more and more aggressive military action the world over. Um, so that was the case with Trump and uh, now also in a different way, but still sort of consistently so with uh, Biden. That's pretty disgusting how ardent they are on, on driving us towards World War Three, And that's, that's why I'm very excited to speak with you because um, I think... 
you are an individual. Like, would you consider yourself an independent journalist? Um, yeah, you know, I just say journalist. I mean, sometimes people will uh, uh, append independence to my title, which is fine. Uh, I guess I am independent, but, you know, I write for different publications and have my own offerings and whatnot. So just, just journalist works, but I'm also not even that wedded to the whole notion of being a journalist because journalists are very self-important and melodramatic about like the moral significance of what it means to be a journalist. Whereas you could just be a total hack and operative and sleaze merchant and still be a journalist. Um, so I don't think it, it, the term itself carries any kind of moral weight uh, unto itself. I would concur. I think you do an incredible job of bringing to the surface ideas and information that many who do like the mantle journalists because of what they perceive it, it brings them in, in forms of status and uh, proximity to power. Uh, you're doing a good job to, to bring information to the surface that, that many aren't getting and should be getting, in my opinion. Um, like right now, what's going on between Russia and Ukraine is a perfect example of a, the corporate press, many who would consider themselves journalists, essentially just being stenographers for the adults in the room um, who, who seem to want to force us into this war. Well, they don't even think that the Ukraine war is an issue that's rightly in the realm of reasonable debate. Like they think that the premises underlying the nature of the U.S. commitment are just so unassailable that to question them or to even qu query too deeply into them is a marker of your own kind of ethical disreputability. And so whenever they're, that's how they kind of crystallize a consensus around their policy. But when I say they, I'm kind of referring to this amorphous kind of conglomeration of the media and the political class that kind of cohere with one another to advance a certain policy agenda. And what the policy agenda is right now is proxy war in Ukraine against Russia. And a lot of people don't even understand really that it is a proxy war against Russia because it doesn't sound that pleasant. Like the whole, the concept, the, the term proxy war is potentially fraught with some troubling implications. Um, so there's like a kind of systemic denial that that's what the U.S. is doing. And so what, what you have, it's just these kind of general slogans around the need to quote unquote stand with Ukraine or support Ukraine or uh, show Putin who's boss or whatever. And they don't really get into what that specifically entails on a policy level because what it entails might not go over so well if it were actually laid out in more precise detail because it is a proxy war. I mean, you have to go as I did to Poland to see it firsthand where like the mechanics of the proxy war are at least partially visible. I mean, they're also largely shrouded from any kind of journalistic or public scrutiny by the U.S. military right now because they're not even giving friendly journalists any kind of media access at all to these two installations that have been built up in Southeast Poland where the U.S. is sort of running this weapons funneling operation out of. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, you are able to see like the weapons convoys, the trucks being loaded, right? The U.S. military personnel walking around in their combat fatigues and kind of assembling behind fences and loading Humvees and all this. I mean, it's a, a real military operation. It's an intervention. 
But the U.S. is, is engaged in a military intervention right now. It's just running it out of a friendly, quote unquote, or an allied country in Poland. But it's doing it in service of facilitating warfare in an active war zone. Um, and I just don't think a lot of Americans, especially if all they think of that Ukraine is like a cosmic battle between good and evil, and of course we're on the side of good, I don't think they have enough of a fulsome understanding of what the U.S. commitment really is here. Um, and so, you know, to the extent that I can, which is not much, but uh, just a drop at the bucket, really, but I'm trying to drop into the bucket some preliminary uh, pearls of knowledge that hopefully can help people make a more informed judgment about whether they do or don't support what the U.S. is up to at the moment. Yes. The, I mean, the binary framework, which people have been thrust into from a, like a public debate perspective is just extremely disheartening to see. It's like, all right, like you said, you're either with Ukraine or you're with Putin. It's like, all right, let's, can we take a step back here, have a nuanced conversation, recognize that Lindsey Graham, John McCain, and others were in Ukraine many years ago saying, we're going we're gonna to take over Russia. Can we recognize that there uh, has been NATO encroachment around Russia's borders, which they obviously don't like, and maybe uh, there's a diplomatic way to to solve this problem in that regard. Well, Lindsey Graham, John McCain, and also Amy Klobuchar. So this was one of the glorious, uh, famed bipartisan delegations in December of 2016. And there's a video of this that resurfaced recently. They went to Ukraine and they met with a Ukrainian military unit um, in one of these facilities that had been just recently built up by the, uh, at the time, uh, Poroshenko government. And... Lindsey Graham and John McCain are fulminating that, you know, 2017 will be the year that Ukraine goes on the offensive and Russia needs to bear a far greater cost. Meaning these were two, <laughs> these were senators uh, from the U S you know, more or less official representatives of the U S government uh, declaring that the that policy that they were trying to impart was that the U S would, be backing an escalation in direct warfare against Russia. So even at that time, it was kind of a quasi-proxy war or like a, or even a real a lower-grade proxy war. But now it's a full-fledged proxy war where this is where the, the focus of U.S. foreign policy is right now. And that we've been told that there are these existential stakes because if Putin is not stopped in Ukraine, then he's going to advance into additional countries, including potentially NATO countries. I mean, Rick Scott, the Republican senator from Florida, made this very argument on TV not long ago, saying, you know, if we don't do everything within our capacity to stop Putin in Poland, then we're going to have to get into the fight eventually because we're going to have to eventually defend. Um, I'm going to misspoke. If we don't stop him in Ukraine, meaning stop Putin in Ukraine, we're going to eventually have to stop in Poland. Right, because that will trigger our NATO obligations. So their their idea is that you know this is we're in this for the long haul, um, and it's why you have a lot of people saying some variation of World War Three is already underway, um, and it's not a matter of do we or don't we instigate World War Three. It's do we or don't we intervene now to blunt Putin's rise so we have an upper hand against him in the waging of World War Three. And so, you know, this this is crazy logic, but it's becoming more and more um, mainstream and more and more accepted. It's just kind of a default consensus position. Uh, well, which is hilarious too, because you the contradictions that 
arise or have arisen in the last few weeks. Like Putin and the Russian army are getting beaten down in in Ukraine, though you're afraid of them expanding beyond Ukraine and into Poland. Like like what it like what is actually happening here? Yeah. Like what is happening on the ground? That's something for me that I'm trying to figure out. And again, like I've been accused of being pro Putin. I'm sorry you have as well, but it's like, all right, can we, can we just, no, reckon, never. can we just recognize that again, we're in the middle of a proxy war and uh, Ukrainian citizens, Russian citizens, and those of us in the West who are being propagandized by the corporate media are, are simply pawns in a big dick measuring contest on the global stage. Well, not only that, but, the Ukrainian government, such as it exists, is engaged in a furious propaganda offensive, as one would expect. They're in a hot war, and that always operates in tandem with a propaganda offensive, right? And journalists, and so is Russia, by the way, okay? But journalists, on the one hand, will say, we are so seasoned, and we are so savvy, and cynical, and eager to hold power to account that, of course, we're cognizant that we're dealing with right now something called the fog of war. You have kind of omnidirectional propaganda, can't take anything at face value, got to be super scrupulous about what information you accept and what you don't and how you report things, how you frame things or construct narratives and so on. So the fog of war is a huge obstacle in terms of getting at the truth. And then what do they do? I mean, so they, they, they purport to be cognizant of that in principle. And then what do they do it by and large? They just peddle whatever the Ukrainian government officials are saying on any given day. I mean, they get these operational updates from like the defense minister of Ukraine or from some local government authority or from Zelensky himself or Zelensky advisors. That gets pushed out you know, over social media uh, or one of these like dopey live shots where you have a TV correspondent standing in Lviv where there hasn't been a whole lot of fighting except for a handful of airstrikes you know, in the vicinity in Western Ukraine. And you'll have one of these TV correspondents like at Sky News or at ABC or something. They'll say, you know, well, the latest is that uh, Ukraine has warded off Russian forces in, around Kiev. Now, they're not even in Kiev, but they're reporting this as like the just observable fact. And what are they sourcing it to? They're sourcing it to the claims of Ukrainian government officials who we know are actively engaged in a propaganda offensive and thus should be regarded with extreme skepticism, not least because what is the main object of their propaganda offensive right now as manifested by Zelensky's whirlwind lobbying tour? It's to call for a no-fly zone. And that's ultimately what they want, right? And and yet, so so there should be heightened, dramatic, extreme skepticism of any claim coming from a Ukrainian government official right now. And what do we get instead? Maximum credulity, maximum uh, blitheness in the uh, willingness of journalists to simply just propagate on behalf of these government officials whatever they're claiming on any given day and call that some sort of reporting, which... I guess if you want to call that reporting, it's fine, but it's really just, you know, as you mentioned, stenographic uh, regurgitation of the current line of the side that you're deeply emotionally and politically ideologically invested in prevailing on a battlefield. And that's just, 
you know, you can say that you're aware there's a, there's a fog of war, but now you're a participant in the fog of war on behalf of one particular faction. Yes. And the, the hero worship of Zelensky, particularly by Westerners, has been very creepy, especially when you get, like, again, like you should. Him himself as just a, a character in this this proxy war. They're all, in my opinion, controlled to some extent or another. I mean, we know from the Panama Papers that Zelensky has um, tens of millions of dollars in offshore accounts. He has houses in Miami, and he's supposed to be a humble Ukrainian actor. Became president and is now thrust into this position where he's he's actively begging people. To get engaged in World War Three, and just him as a literal actor, uh, it, it is. I have many doubts about the, uh, the the intention of of his actions, and that may be harsh to say. Many people may say that's um, it's it's crazy to think, but there's, I believe my lying eyes. Well, think about it this way. I mean, this is kind of amazing. More than amazing. Um, perversely <laughs> staggering that the global figure who far and away has been the most valorized figure of the past, I don't know, many years in the, his since Fauci being heralded. Well, yeah, let's say head of state. Okay. in his being heralded for historic heroism, historic, Achievements in leadership, choose your cliche, uh, for you know rallying his people, called you know Churchillian in the best possible sense, including by literally repeating Churchill-esque lines at an address to the UK Parliament a few weeks ago. Uh, the, I think it, it's fair to say that this person is probably the most celebrated world figure now in um, quite some time. And what is his number one policy prescription? What is the number one thing he's trying to achieve? It's the instigation of World War III. I mean, that's what it is. That's what Joe Biden says it is. He said he's Joe Biden says if we accede to what Zelensky wants, says he wants to be done, that will instigate World War III. And yet we're all somehow compelled and like mandated to venerate. This figure who even the president says, and this is not just Biden saying it, you know, Marco Rubio has said it repeatedly across the spectrum. It's pretty well agreed upon that to agree with Zelensky's prescription in terms of the correct policy intervention in Ukraine is to agree to the initiation of World War III. And yet it's still somehow morally incumbent on us to venerate the person making that demand. As if World War III is not like the most mind-bogglingly cataclysmic outcome that pretty much anybody on planet Earth could ever fathom. But somehow we're supposed to compartmentalize that and adulate the number one proponent of starting World War III. I mean, it's it's a it's a tension or a friction that doesn't seem like uh, anybody wants to really reconcile. They're just kind of continuing up on in the mindless adulation because of the whole kind of frenzy around Ukraine as a, this, again, cosmic battle between good and evil and like a comic book hero Marvel movie sense. And you're not supposed to think too deeply about the implications of what you're adulating, which would be the instigation of World War III. I mean, so, I, I mean, I don't care what their motive, I mean, here, here's my moral reasoning and maybe I'm crazy, but I don't care really 
how otherwise laudatory somebody is. If what they're advocating is World War Three, and if World War Three is like the death knell for humankind, <laughs> then I'm not going to be you know bullied or coerced into expressing my undying gratitude to the guy who's lobbying for World War Three. And I don't I don't express that for you know a Putin either because he's obviously he would be complicit. He's launched a preemptive invasion, which I don't think is warranted under any circumstances. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, that doesn't somehow necessarily require you to venerate the guy whose actual position is that World War III would be good. Hey, he's pulling up chairs and sitting six inches from the press. He's wearing T-shirts. He's our guy. He's, uh... Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's, 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 he's arguing for World War III, but it's kind of cool because he's wearing a T-shirt. Yeah. God. Down, down to earth and relatable. I mean, it's just, particularly Westerners. I mean, again, you you were over in Poland, so you're seeing the stuff up front. I think was particularly dangerous um, uh, of the response that, that like Western elites, actors, uh, famous people are doing. Like we're so disconnected from all this. We're an ocean. We're many miles of land and ocean away from from the actual fighting. And there's just this weird. Uh, virtue signaling that that makes people feel good, and yet they, they have no idea of the actual physical consequences on the ground. They just again, it's, it's an extension of a lot of the virtue signaling around many other subjects that that uh, have come and gone over the last few years. This is just the next the, the new thing, as people are saying. Yeah, you know, I'm not against virtue virtue signaling. As such, because some virtues are probably good I, and a good idea to signal, right? But this is sort of a cost-free signaling of acceptance, at least tacit acceptance, of the notion of World War III. I mean, it is. I mean, what, what, when you, somebody waves a Ukrainian flag, I mean, what, what's the reason that you're waving it? It's a, actually, a lot of people don't even seem to know. Sometimes I'll ask, and they can't give a good answer. But the most ardent. So when I was in the, the first uh, couple of days I was in Poland, I was in Warsaw and I was walking by the U.S. Uh, embassy. And uh, there were kind of a group of Ukrainians, not recently displaced Ukrainians or refugees, but people of Ukrainian origin who lived in Poland and had for some time because there's a lot of kind of cross pollination, you know, in terms of the demographics of the two countries. Um, and I uh, ended up talking to these Ukrainian protesters who were demonstrating outside the uh, U.S. embassy, and they were demonstrating for what? For a no-fly no zone or, or to close the sky. That's the euphemism that seems to be the most popular amongst Ukrainians um, when they're <clears throat> advancing this proposal. And uh, an older woman kind of ran up on, on me uh, unsolicited and attached a yellow and blue ribbon to my jacket lapel, which is, you know, fine. I mean, that's, I accepted it. Uh, but like, it wasn't ambiguous to me what she believed, what virtue she believed was being signified by the lapel. It was in tandem with her call for another flies. I mean, that's what the lapel meant. So the people who are closest to the conflict have no illusions about what this symbology is intended to convey. It's intended to convey a maximalist military 
intervention that they think is of urgent moral necessity. And, you know, they have the right to advocate for it, but I have the right to say that that's insane. And also the right to, to note that people who, uh, who, all, who kind of just as a matter of cultural kind of reflex also have find themselves waving the same flag, don't really know what they're talking about. And they should go and talk to the people who have the most at stake meaning the Ukrainians, who can explain to them what is intended to be conveyed by that symbolic act. Because um, uh, otherwise, I mean, they're just, you know, BSing. Yeah, I mean, they could wake up two years from now, the hot wars reached our shores, and be like, oh, wow, maybe I shouldn't have put that Ukrainian flag in my profile. Um, it's, yeah. it's, uh, and again, like, it's like the hardest thing about covering this particular topic. It's like, oh no, you're pro-Putin, like you're pro-war. Like, don't you want to stop it? It's like, again, the, the binary framework in which people have been thrust into, it's like this or this. Like Biden was completely irresponsible when he came out. You have two options. It's sanctions or World War Three, And it's like, there's no room for, for diplomacy. Or again, as, as an American who is appalled by the war machine, the intelligence apparatus, and the, the political structure at the federal level here, and just completely jaded by, I mean, I'm a child of 9-11, 2008 financial crisis. Now we're rolling into this, and it's just like these people should not be controlling anything that, that happens well, in the world. It's this whole mantra of adults in the room, uh, and I did a, a subsect on this a few days ago, but... Um, you know, first it was that Trump was going to be restrained by these military generals or retired generals who he had inserted into key positions of the administration, like H.R. McMaster, who was the National Security Advisor, or Mattis, who was the Defense Secretary, or John Kelly, who was the Chief of Staff, et cetera. And they were like, you know, they were uh, hardened and wise, uh, serious men who were going to not allow Trump to go too crazy and do stuff like withdraw troops from foreign deployments, right? Um, and uh, Biden basically campaigned in 2020 as the personification or the uh, ultimate instantiation of the this adults in the room thesis um, as to like what kind of leadership, quote unquote, was needed in, in the US, especially post-Trump. Like you had to move past the chaos and tumult of the Trump years and return power into the hands of the, the adults in the room. The problem with the adults in the room is that they're always agitating for more and more military intervention and more and more, you know, expenditure on the Pentagon and more and more covert ops and everything to do with the national security state apparatus, mass surveillance, et cetera. Those are all depicted as serious or adult like opinions to want the, the continued deployment of these uh, powers of the government. And so Biden gets in and, you know, what is one of the, 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 what's the number one thing that you would expect the adult in the room to do in a vacuum if you, they really did think that a war was in the offing in Ukraine that would be the largest kind of ground war in Europe since World War II and had the potential to spiral into something more nightmarishly catastrophic like a nuclear confrontation. Well, you would expect them to go all out diplomatically, right? To do to exhaust every option diplomatically, to not rest until they could find whatever diplomatic solution was available to potentially avert this disastrous outcome. And what did the U.S. do? 
under the stewardship of Biden and I guess his fellow adult, Anthony Blinken, the secretary of state. Well, they preemptively ruled out diplomacy by saying we are not willing to budge one inch to allay Russia's stated security concerns as it relates to NATO and the open door, so-called open door policy of NATO, where they reserve the right, NATO does, to potentially admit Ukraine is a member, even if everyone seems to acknowledge that Ukraine was not likely to become a member anytime soon. But they were so wedded to the principle that NATO could become a member that it meant that they were not willing to give any kind of concession at all to Putin, who was very explicit in desiring this concession. For decades. Yeah, even if it meant a verdict, well, decades. And also, like when the ultimatum sort of came down in December, when Russia sent this written list of security demands to the U.S. They didn't send it to Ukraine, right? They didn't send it to China. They didn't send it to Namibia or to, you know, Indonesia. They sent it to the U.S. because the U.S. was the only party that had within its capacity uh, the, the ability to actually ameliorate Russia's stated concerns on this issue. And I'm not defending or justifying the concerns. I'm just noting from like a real politic standpoint that those were the concerns on the table. And the U.S., under the seasoned leadership of Biden, who is the ultimate foreign policy adult because he had decades of experience, right, going back to, I don't know, the Stone Age, um, he was, he, he was, had the ability to, you know, in theory, address the security concern and avert war, which would be, you know, a genuinely heroic thing. I mean, if, if the U.S. president successfully averted a war rather than started one for once, I would be the first one cheering. Um, but what did they do? They arbitrarily blocked off any diplomatic channel that, act, that could have led to some sort of peaceable resolution. And what happened? Well, the war started. Um, and even today, despite the U.S. government's feigning, uh, feigning humanitarian affinity for suffering Ukrainians, what are they doing? Well, there was an incredible Bloomberg column by Neil Ferguson that came out last week. I don't know if you saw it, but he quoted an anonymous U.S. official who was caught ranting in a private function, meaning a Biden administration official. Who, and this Biden administration official blurted out what Biden himself ended up articulating in public and Warsaw had a speech a few days ago where he demanded, essentially called for regime change in Russia. Not essentially, he did call for regime change in Russia. Well, this was kind of uh, prelude, preluded by an anonymous official getting caught by Neil Ferguson, the Bloomberg columnist, saying that the strategy of the U.S. is to, quote unquote, bleed Putin dry on the battlefield by exacerbating and prolonging the war and causing Russia to become destabilized and ultimately the aim is to collapse the Russian government. And that's why the U.S. is not aiding any ceasefire negotiations right now. In fact, they're actively undercutting them. So this is what we get thanks to the adults in the room. This is their approach. And we're all supposed to kind of worship at their feet for being so very serious and so very mature in their dealings on the world stage. Yeah. It's fucked. It makes you feel helpless to a certain extent. But that, and again, that's why I think an individual like yourself is so important. Like we need to get this information out there that we expand the framework of debate and options that should be on the table to hopefully 
put some public pressure on these people to like stop the madness. You're you're trying to rush us in the World War Three at worst. At best, you're trying to turn Ukraine into another Libya, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan situation, which is not good for Ukrainian citizens or U.S. citizens, because in the long run, we just piss people off and make them more likely to want to attack us. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, uh, the, who is the biggest disservice being done to at this time? And well, it's the Ukrainian citizen. I mean, on the one hand, they're being, I think, deceived and misled and propagandized by their own government leadership, where, you know, Zelensky uh, one day will be making maximalist statements about basically fighting to death, not conceding anything to Russia, and we're going to basically never surrender. We're going to continue fighting for as long as humanly possible. And we want these weapons to be sent in by the U.S. and the European Union and other countries. And basically, you know, this is our fate rests upon our ability to prevail on the battlefield now. That's what more or less the message from Zelensky. And, you know, remember he was being showered with praise for telling just ordinary civilians that they should take up arms and hand a Molotov cocktails and like run up on trained Russian military units and fight them. I mean, that supposedly that was like, you know, all these, um, you know, enlightened liberals thought that was like the most glorious thing. Well, now you have, um, now you have like the Westerners who are going over to fight and they're posting it on Reddit and they're like giving up their location in Ukraine and and Russian armies finding them and killing them. It's like, what are you guys doing? Like, this isn't a video game. This isn't like, yeah. yeah, well, one other thing, yeah, I actually encountered a guy, an American guy who joined this international legion in Ukraine called, uh, according to him, the Zelensky Battalion, <laughs> and who was present at this facility called the, Inter- supposedly called the International Peacekeeping Facility, although there didn't seem to be a whole lot of peacekeeping done at this facility. It seemed more like a training facility for military operations um, and was used for, for that, uh, you know, overtly by the U.S. in the past um, when they had these supposed trainers or advisors in Ukraine proper. But, you know, he was this guy who I talked to who was an American. He was he says that he was present uh, around two weeks ago now when this facility in Yavoriv in western, far western Ukraine, just 15 miles from the Poland border, was bombed by Russia. And still the number of casualties that stem from that incident are not fully known. There was at least 35 killed although there may have been far more because again fog of war we don't know for sure uh, but the uh, pentagon spokesperson john kirby the day after that bombing came out and said that there were no american casualties he could confirm that there were no americans at the base at all and well that turned out not to be true according to the american that i personally encountered who said that he was on the base during the bombing not an active duty soldier obviously but he you know he's in the full military fatigues and uh, he was training on the base, and uh, he was injured in the bombing. And so what John Kirby, the Pentagon spokesperson, said was not accurate. Um, but anyway, the point I was making was that the ultimate victims are uh, really the Ukrainians, because on the one hand, they're being deceived by their own leader, government leadership by saying, look, we're all, all going to be saved by a no-fly zone, even though it seems to, seems to me if a no-fly no zone were actually implemented, the first population to be annihilated would be world would, would be uh ukrainians right um so why they think that's going to be their savior i'm not 100 percent sure other than they're just 
lashing out in desperation or kind of like in the midst of this war furor. And they're also being uh, dragged along and misled by the U.S. Um, but because, you know, there was this policy of like strategic ambiguity of some kind, you know, similar to the, what the U.S. says is this policy with Taiwan vis-a-vis China. But in Ukraine, you know, the idea was that you know, we are going to be maintain this principle that Ukraine will be entering NATO at some point, but we're not going to give a date. And the U.S. kept forging these new strategic arrangements with the Ukrainian government that alluded to the prospect of NATO membership down the line, uh, but they didn't actually formally give the assurance of it. So Ukraine was kind of caught in the middle. And then, you know, of, of course, they're being victimized now by Russia, which launched an aggressive uh, invasion. So they're really the got the short end of the stick here and uh, and yet the um the people waving the flags and putting the emoji the, the uh, yellow and blue emojis in their twitter bios and instagram handles and whatnot um they 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 profess to have such profound concern for the suffering of ukraine's but it seems to me everything they advocate is just going to exacerbate that suffering and yet they still will somehow claim the moral high ground yeah, the pro-Putin fringe journalists are are anti-Ukrainian citizens because because they just want peace. They they want to point out the the hypocrisy of uh, peace via no-fly zone that leads to World War Three. It doesn't make any sense. Well, I had a lot of discussions with actual you know displaced Ukrainians who had just fled the country into Poland, came into Poland, and in several cases underwent pretty arduous journeys, having to go through you know Hungary and Slovakia. Moldova and so on to, before eventually getting to Poland where they, especially if they want to come to the U.S., they have a better, best chance probably in the region to come to Poland and have a more expedited visa application process. So I, I did encounter a number of Ukrainian um, Swiss people who are genuine victims of the war. They had their life upended. They had um, any, mostly women who had to flee with you know, young children who they feared for the safety of, et cetera. Um, and Maybe it's because I'm a fringe character, but in talking to them and getting the humane side of their story, you know, told to me without mediation, like these are these weren't people who were provided to me by some NGO or who uh, some PR apparatchik orchestrated my uh, interview with or anything. No, I just happened to cross them intentionally in sort of a random way, so I would not have any kind of go between, right? And um, yeah, I mean they have they have harrowing uh, stories and, and they're affecting, um, especially you know with, with you know coming, clutching their babies and stuff and, and fearing for for the future. But that hardened my resolve to not flinch on um, these sort of questions of how to uh, alleviate suffering when it seems just more than abundantly clear to me that the popular consensus around suffering alleviation is just phony because what is it ultimately geared toward? And the, this is not, uh, not a secret. I mean, Biden announced it at the speech. They're trying to prolong the suffering because in service of this geopolitical gambit, which is insane, of foisting regime change upon Russia. And then what's going to become of the nuclear arsenal in Russia once that's done? I don't know. I'm not sure anybody's really thought it through. But it doesn't seem like the, the number one thing that you'd gravitate toward if you're principled, pure-hearted goal was merely to reduce human suffering. Um, they don't, I don't think they particularly care about that. I mean, maybe they circumstantially care about it. Maybe Biden does, you know, since he's a human being, get moved when he's told a tale of somebody who had to leave their homes and 
flee into a neighboring country. But the policy implication of what it is they're trying to impose is not about just some benevolent humanitarian impulse to, to mitigate suffering. It's a, it's a geopolitical power play as usual. And, you know, I'm not really, I don't have much patience for people saying, look, I'm a peacenik and I'm anti-war and I, I, I only want to help the benighted Ukrainians. And that's why I want to dump a massive amount of high-grade weaponry into Ukraine day after day. I mean, that doesn't really wash to me as a morally uh, defensible argument as much as they've been propagandized into believing that it is. Yeah. Again, you're just going to create another Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria. I mean, typical deep state playbook, which leads me to another thing. It seems pretty obvious that President Biden uh, doesn't have his full mental capacities there anymore. He, he seems to be losing his mind in front of the world, which leads me like, I mean, yesterday, I mean, in the popular picture going around of him holding the talking points, tough on Putin Q&A. And he basically, yeah. the stenographers were handed the questions they could ask and the answers were already pre-written I mean, like big block letters. I mean, actually Trump had something similar, but it's, it's yeah. on occasion that would get photographed. But it was like, um, it's like you handle like a children's book or something like a, that was, it was like a dumb, such an exponentially dumbed down version of what the U.S. policy is, but they needed to present it to him that way in order for him to digest it, apparently, which is kind of you know, pathetic. And he still fucked it up. <laughs> yeah. He still did not stay on message. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I agree, with, I, 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 I agree that his mental devolution is more and more apparent. It was most apparent to me in recent days when he was at this um, U.S. military installation in Jeshav Pol, where I actually spent uh, a, lot, a fair amount of time just this past month. Um, it's kind of the hub of U.S. military activity right now, close to the Ukraine border in Poland. Um, all these weapons are being flown in from the U.S. and NATO countries into this airport. Then the U.S. is basically the prime mover of these weapons provisions, right? Um, so that's where Biden visited and Trump. But all, Bear in mind, journalists are not allowed into this facility. Even the most friendly, handpicked journalists are told that actually there's a media blackout. That's not my term. That's what U.S. soldiers, more than one of them, told me was the exact policy at these new found military installations in southeast Poland. Um, so even the handpicked kind of PR-minded journalists are not allowed to go into these places, which what does that tell you? Um, but anyway, Biden showed up with this choreographed little dialogue with the troops where he said, um, you probably saw this, but you know, you're going to, he said, quote unquote, you're going to see when you're there. I mean, telling the troops that they're going to see when they're there in Ukraine, these amazing examples of heroism on the part of Ukrainian civilians where women and children are confronting tanks. And what does that mean? I mean, the, the, a plain reading of what Biden said there is that he's, he is the commander in chief intends to dispatch these U.S. soldiers to Ukraine so they, quote, unquote, unquote, can see when they're there what the hell Biden's talking about. Otherwise, it's unintelligible. But but he was kind of, he was very, it, it was like he was a jet-flagged, you know, jet-lagged jet 79-year-old, which he was. Um, so it's not, even, it's not that surprising, necessarily. But that was an indication of him just looking very, looking and sounding very slothful. 
I think on the other hand, the following day when he was in Warsaw and was delivering a prepared speech, that was an instance where it did seem like he probably got one of his occasional like amphetamine cocktails. <laughs> and he wasn't stuttering abnormally. I mean, he wasn't kind of uh, exhibiting these kind of this kind of like a lassitude where he's struggling to find his words and he has these long pregnant pauses and stuff. No, I mean, he was fair, lo- uh, inordinately lucid during that speech. And it was a prepared speech. And at the climax of the speech, he delivered the key line, which was, you know, by God, this man cannot stay in power as relates to Putin. I mean, that's, it was even, even today, several days later now, there's no indication that that was an so, so-called unscripted remark or an accidental ad lib. Um, the White House won't even confirm this, according to the Financial Times. The White House won't even say one way or another whether that particular line was scripted or it wasn't, which kind of lends credence to the theory that it was scripted. But they're trying to do this kind of multi-layered PR slash diplomatic move where slash like actually just provocation move where, you know, the, the threat's already out there. The threat's public. It can't be rescinded. But they can say, oh, this isn't official U.S. policy, whatever that means. That takes a little bit of the heat off, but then they're able to pursue what Biden just admitted is U.S. policy is, which anybody could have inferred U.S. policy is even prior to the speech in Warsaw, which is engineering regime change in Russia. And that's the point. That's what was reported in the Bloomberg article. That's what anybody who's analyzing the totality of U.S. policy now could ascertain. Um, But the point, like, I I actually don't think him saying that line at the speech in Warsaw demanding regime change in Russia was an example of his mental incompetence. I think that was one of the rare moments where he was mentally competent because it was a genuine bonafide reflection of what his intent is. Uh, and and that is actually probably the most troubling. Yeah. And what the the deep states intent was, again, we can go back to Lindsey Graham and John McCain. Like what, what was that pump-up speech the Ukrainian soldiers back then? You're going to go get Russia. Like, all right, why, why are you going to go get Russia? You probably won't regime go on the change. Offense. Yeah. And it's, yep. and again, like this, so diving into these special interests, whether it be the deep state or like the Biden family alone, like the the hunter, they conveniently just like during all this, like uh, hunters, hunters laptops real. Uh, now, yeah, like, oh, by the way, <laughs> yeah, by the way, uh, this was actually real. Um, the thing we told you was Russian disinformation. Uh, actually, turned out to be real, which is like hilarious. Like the hypocritical nature of. The, um, the the adults in the room uh, uh, projecting like oh Russian disinformation on Trump turned out not to be f- real like everything they they flung at him they they actually turned out to be doing at the end of the day. Yeah, you know, having been accused of being a an agent of Russian disinformation now for over for going on six years. I think it's fair to say that I'm kind of inured to the charge. And on top of that, when I reflect back on previous instances of me being labeled a Russian disinformation agent or a stooge or a pawn or whatever of Russia, you know, it was around stuff like uh, Russia Gate, um, whether around the Mueller investigation, around whether or not there was collusion between the Trump campaign or presidency and the Russian government. Um, it was around issues like Syria, where we were told that you were a Russian stooge if you somehow didn't want to militarily confront Russia in 
Syria, remember Hillary Clinton was a staunch advocate for a no-fly zone in Syria mm-hmm. in the 2016 election, which would have, just as it would now, uh, necessitate direct warfare between the U.S. and Russia. Um, if you uh, question any kind of the overblown hysterics around the depictions of Putin as this uh, global exporter of sinister right-wing insurrectionary fervor, if you doubted that he was like the uh, puppeteer behind every ill uh ill event anywhere in the world uh you got called a putin sympathizer um and more if you could rest assured now or be relatively confident anyway that when you get called a putin defender or sympathizer or stooge or whatever that you're you're close to the mark because every Every time I was called such, it, from 2016 to today, um, the facts have subsequently borne out that I don't want to claim vindication or to my own horde or anything, but like my general thrust of critique uh, in, the, in the case of Russiagate, in the case of Russiagate's many dimensions, uh, were not disproven by the facts, but, rather, but, but bolstered by them, notwithstanding the charges that I was subject to. Um, and... Likewise, now, if you're trying to like put forward a sort of sensible and clear-eyed assessment of the nature of U.S. policy in fomenting this proxy war against Russia, um, you know, yeah, you're going to get immediately castigated as somehow personally loving Putin or being even financially in hock to Putin. Um, but you know, I th- I'm pretty confident that the uh, facts will. Uh, eventually also bolster uh, what the main kind of thrust of the viewpoint that I've been trying to espouse and, and report on these past couple of weeks, because there's still so much that we don't know about the true nature of U.S. involvement in Ukraine. Um, so much is being actively concealed. And um, sometimes we get these kind of faint allusions to stuff like the New York Times reporting that the CIA, CIA is vetting Ukrainian military units that these weapons are being passed along to, and where, from where are they vetting these units? Like, are they in Ukraine territory? It was left unclear by the New York Times reporting. But there's stuff like that that we still don't have nothing close to the full picture of. So um, I would say down the line, you can uh, be pretty certain that there are going to be uh, revelations that make more than abundantly clear that the U.S. is engaged in a proxy war or even something a step beyond that. And uh, you know, it would be also clear that the details were withheld from the public because any kind of fulsome debate would not be convenient to the pe- people in charge of orchestrating that proxy war. Yeah. I mean, you had John McCain vetting soldiers in, in Syria turn out to be ISIS. Uh, there's a lot of information coming out that a lot of the weapons that are going over there may be going to uh, the Asmov battalion. Uh, and then again, like I like the biolabs thing is another thing that just got quickly uh, swept under the rug where you had a, uh, what's her name? Newland testifying in front of Marco Rubio. Like we need to protect these biolabs. So the Russians don't get uh, access to the pathogens there alluding to them being bioweapons. And then the media immediately being like, there's no bioweapons there. Like it's like, that that does not compute. And what is the U.S.'s connection to those labs? How much have we funded? And now with the Hunter laptop, now it's becoming 
apparent that it is real and the emails on that laptop, some of them have to do with biomedical companies that are associated with the biolabs in Ukraine and nobody seems to want well, the, to touch that. Well, the fallacy with the bioweapons thing is that, yes, it's true that the charge originated with Russian state propaganda. I mean, they did publish documents and they put it out through their kind of affiliated social media accounts and then also through like official statements from the defense ministry um alleging the existence of these uh bio labs so that's true that it's true that that's where the charge originated but they then they also provided the first-hand documentary materials that, that could be independently corroborated right you could then go to the u.s government agencies in question and seek confirmation about the existence of these weapons facilities. So you didn't need to rely on the Russian state propaganda, right? You could do it in, an investigation journalistically, totally independent of whatever it is that those organs were saying. But there was just a total refusal to do that. To even do that would be seen, at, immediately denounced as um, aiding in the amplification of Russian propaganda, even if it had nothing to do with Russian propaganda. I mean, this is U.S. government policy, right? Um, so it, that was kind of the fallacy there uh, as to just to, to justify laziness and to, um, I'm sorry, to justify a laziness on the part of uh, U.S. journalists who, again, ha have an overriding emotional investment in the triumph of one side of this conflict, the Ukrainians, and the overriding intense animus toward another side, Ukraine, or uh, Russia, rather. Um, and so that's how they orient their journalistic philosophy now. It's not about truth-telling or fact-finding. It's about what team they're on and what is the side of good versus evil. And that's, I think, always an inherently distortive paradigm for a journalist, because all there, as you kind of launched this conversation by mentioning, there are always sh shades of nuance um and you know you can be a, it's more than possible to you know be against an invasion and also want to understand the reality of what the our own government is doing in terms of these uh, bio, bio uh, potential biological warfare uh, testing projects because it's not like it's unprecedented for the u.s government to be engaged in such activities they had fully they admitted publicly i mean there's a i pulled up a few weeks ago there's um GAO report for, from 2004, um, where it went into, this was a, a federal government body that was authorized by the U.S. Senate to conduct an investigation into what else, but yeah, biological warfare testing that the Pentagon had been engaged in in the 60s uh, and 70s. And that at, where even, even civilians in places like Canada and the U.K. ended up sickened by this, sickened in a literal sense, I mean, made sick by this testing uh, that the U.S. government was doing in these laboratories. Yeah, they just... And, you know, that was, that was several decades ago, but it's not like there's no precedent for this to be done. I mean, the U.S. government, in the Pentagon in particular, has huge research capacities with, uh, in all kinds of different domains that a lot of these journals are well aware of as a matter of history, but they pretend like they, it's, it's just outside the realm of even... Um, conceivability that anything akin to it could be done now, which is just ridiculous. But again, but again, they justify this feigned 
naivete uh, on the basis of the more urgent moral need to demonstrate that they're on like the right quote unquote side right now. Uh, but I mean, we know that they moved the bio <laughs> testing out of like Fort Friedrichs or whatever that Fort was outside of the U.S. because it was sickening people literally uh, in, Dietrich, in the states. Yeah. Fort Dietrich. Um, we know Operation Mockingbird is a thing that the CIA has infiltrated corporate media to propagandize Americans. Like to think that that has not continued. I mean, we have countless examples of that <laughs> throughout my life. Well, they don't even least. have to infiltrate anymore. I mean, there may well be no equivalent of Operation Mockingbird in effect today because they don't even need to do it covertly anymore. I mean, they could just fill CNN and NBC News and even Fox to some extent and these other outfits with agents of the national security state. And they're hired as like quasi-media figures. I mean, John Brennan famously became an employee of MSNBC right after leaving the Obama administration and was the number one sort of narrative weaver Mm -hmm. on air around Russiagate. This is the former CIA director. So they almost don't even need to do it surreptitiously anymore. Oh yeah, it's all out um, in the open. Yeah. It's like we don't even care. You, you, you're, you've been cast under such a spell that you don't even recognize what's I mean, going on right who, now. Who are the number one people who we get supposed expert analysis from? If you actually, if you watch TV, which I don't recommend doing, I, mean, I do it now and then just to know what's being aired, not because I'm actually seeking information value from it, right? Um, who are the number one experts that are aired about uh, that are put on air to regale us with their knowledge about the status of the Russian advance in Ukraine? It's like. David Petraeus, it's General Jack Keane, it's uh, Barry McCaffrey, it's um, Jim Stavridis, it's, uh, you know, all these, you know, high and mighty uh, retired generals and admirals who then get showered with funds by media networks to become paid contributors and they use that as to, to burnish their own career credentials so they can sit on more corporate boards and make more boatloads of money. I mean, it's the most incestuous relationship ever. And this used to be condemned because this was also standard practice during Iraq. Oh, yeah. Um, and liber- liberals used to complain about it rightly. And now they don't care anymore because they, they, they have they're having a, this embedded liberal rationale for why is it they're so zealously in favor of the current war effort and it kind of congeals with the, with a the conservative rationale that also exists um but they don't but it doesn't bother them anymore apparently or they don't really even want to look into it because it, it's you know uh, they're on the, these generals might be propagandists and they might be directly personally benefiting from their so-called expert commentary but it's um it's all in it in favor of the side of good versus evil. And that's really what matters to them. Yeah. Well, which is funny, right? Like, so I'm happy you said that good versus evil. That's all that matters to them. And going back to what I said earlier about like, again, a lot of the Russia disinformation, Russian bot stuff was people projecting, um, <laughs> projecting like what they were actually doing onto the American people and their opponents. And, I think this is the same thing here. Like the, the good and evil, like, oh, put the Ukraine flag in your profile and you're on the side of good, but they're just projecting. Like, what if, like, again, this is why we need journalists like yourself to go, like, what the hell is going on with the biolabs? Like, what has happened with NATO encroachment over the last 
few decades. Like if it is true that we are funding these biolabs and they did have uh, weapons, weaponized pathogens uh, right on Russia's border. Yeah, if I'm Russia, I'm going to be a little pissed off about that. If we have been encroaching against, uh, NATO's been encroaching uh, against the Minsk agreement. Like, yeah, they probably have a right to be mad at that. And like, once you get to the bottom of those questions, if it turns out that we have been instigating, like you, we could make the argument that we are the evil ones because we've instigated them to the point of invading Ukraine and we're able to sit over here nice and safe uh, on our country surrounded by two oceans and yet uh, the Ukrainian people are being subjected to an invading army and many people are dying on both sides and we may be the evil ones because we instigated all this and nobody wants to get to the bottom of that which is extremely hypocritical and indicative of the culture rot that exists over here in the West. Yeah, and there's this firewall erected around any kind of interrogation on those questions because if you present any arguments that suggest the U.S. bears some responsibility or is culpable for provocation or culpable in exacerbating the circumstances that eventually gave rise to Russia launching an invasion, you're, you're implicitly defending Russia, even if you don't have to defend Russia. Like, I... I I sort of made a point for, to, for the first thing that I said upon the launch of the invasion on February 24th to be a condemnation of Russia because I knew, for number one, because I do condemn aggressive invasions, whatever country launches them, I don't think it's warranted in the slightest. And number two, I knew that that actually wouldn't insulate me at all from the charges that I'm defending Russia. Like you can condemn Russia. Like I wanted to demonstrate that one can condemn Russia in unreserved terms and nonetheless still be accused of apologizing for Russia if they bring up other subjects. And lo and behold, that has been the case. Um, so, uh, you know, if you point out, for example, that the U.S. has fostered this ascension of Ukraine into a, a de facto NATO outpost, where they're not formal members, but they have this interoperability initiative with NATO, which is basically the integration of their military capacities with U.S. and NATO uh, military capacities, um, where they're, they're elevated to this like partner status, which is this lower tier of like quasi-NATO membership. Um, if you point out any of that, which most Americans have no idea is the case, they don't know that the U.S. has these regular full military exercises on Ukrainian territory. Uh, and have done so for years, and it's ramped up just in the past couple of years. Um, you know, as recently as uh, summer of last year, there was a full-scale military, U.S. military exercise in Ukrainian territory. Um, and then you have smaller-scale uh, exercises that occur periodically. That's just not known or even really reported on. But if that, if if anything like it ever occurred in proximity to the U.S. borders, I mean. American politicians would go absolutely berserk, probably more berserk than even the Russians are going now. Uh, the R- Russia actually uh, <laughs> events, I think, probably more restraint than somebody like a Lindsey Graham uh, mm-hmm. would have ever shown uh, if a comparable or analogous situation was happening in a manner that he believed threatened the U.S. U.S. sovereignty or U.S. security. Um, so, yeah, pointing any of that out 
and simply describing what should be manifestly obvious, which is that it is it is instigative, it is provocative. Um, that just can't be uh, accepted as a valid argument because automatically it gets distorted into somehow a defense of Russia, even if it isn't, even if it explicitly is not, even if you disclaim that you're defending Russia, it doesn't matter because they, these argument, uh, discursive roadblocks have still been laid down uh, on purpose to foreclose any thoroughgoing assessment of the U.S. role um, because they don't want to be absolved, that they want to, meaning the people in power and the media, their media cheerleaders want to absolve themselves of any responsibility for creating the insane conditions that made this or contributed to this invasion happening in the first place. Well, do they even want to absolve themselves? Do they care? I mean, it doesn't seem like they care. Like we just said, like they'll go on CNN and just like actively say this. Again, I I think what we could get into is like an indictment of the American people just become so lazy and fucking dumb, frankly, that they can't think critically to, to see this and that the, the intelligence apparatus and the deep state just feels completely comfortable treating them like a bunch of ragdolls that should be thrown in any direction at any given point in time. Well, you know, I, I, I always sort of resist assigning blame to ordinary folks to use a folksy cliche because, you know, most people don't have the wherewithal to follow the ins and outs of the stuff. And even if mm-hmm. they want to be conscientious citizens, they often don't know what the right sources of news are. I mean, I, I'm often even asked by plugged in people, people who are relatively more, let's say, discerning uh, where to get their news because they don't really know and they don't have a news consumption kind of routine that they find to be reliable. So for somebody whose like life does not revolve around this stuff, and you know, I consider myself like an anomaly and that I can follow these sorts of things and make some semblance of a livelihood based on it. That's so that's such an outlier, right? In terms of how most people experience these issues, that I'm, I'm not going to like. I'm going to have more uh, humility than to use my relatively quote unquote privileged position to just denounce ordinary Americans who are much more concerned about you know their job and their family and yeah paying their gas bill and stuff. <laughs> yeah, uh, like I think it's. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's defensible to, to lay blame on, on that front, but it is defensible to blame, for example, the journalists who are paid to be hyper aware of these details and actively obscure them or are so bl- uh, willfully blinded by their ideological zeal or their kind of social slash cultural cloistering that they are perpetrators of deceit. Um, and so them, I think, ought to be, uh, they are who I think ought to be scorned. Uh, plus these these think tank freaks and the uh, for profit kind of uh, defense industrial sector and the politicians and the, so there there are plenty of people to rightly blame without necessarily uh, taking it all out on just uh, the average Joe and Jane who I don't think are morally uh, complicit in, for the most part. Yeah, I, I was probably a bit brash there saying that, but no. It, 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 so uh, as I, I forgot to put the light on in this room, and as you can probably tell, it's getting uh, darker. So I do want to. Uh, I can put it on light if that would be. Yeah, if you uh, if we have better. time, if you want to put it on light. Okay, hold on a second. For those of you at home, uh, Michael's standing up to turn on a light. It's 
it's on. Our video is going to be better now. No, thank you for put. Yeah, I should right. not. I should not lay. I should not lay blame on the average Jane and Joe out there who are just trying to go about their lives. Um, but the uh, and so I guess this gets to an interesting topic. You're on Substack now, um, and you have your. Do you think this this movement Substack particularly um, and, and other platforms like and that that aren't as censorious as YouTube and social media companies like Rumble and others. Um, you think these types of platforms are making a difference and um, actually helping get better information out there? You know, I think so. I think a, a constant conundrum for journalism is how to sustainably fund it. Um, I was just reading today, I took a little bit of a break from Russia, Ukraine 24 7 and was reading about how you know, BuzzFeed just uh, essentially nuked its uh, news gathering operation, which, yeah, it did exist. And was a lot of, in large part, crap, but occasionally had some decent stuff. So it was like a mixed bag. And the Michael Hastings um, but, back in the day, that was really good yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, he was one of the founding, uh, I think, writers in the politics section of BuzzFeed when that was sort of a, considered a novel thing for BuzzFeed to even have any politics writing. Um, but anyway, they just kind of basically abolished their their uh, their non just sort of superficial cultural slash celebrity slash internet meme coverage. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, they have all these BuzzFeed staffers bemoaning the inherent tension between you know um, BuzzFeed going public as a with an IPO and and uh, also you know shedding its uh, shedding its commitment to journalism because it wasn't profitable, right? So this is a recurring theme. And uh, what Substack has done, clearly, is that at least for a segment of journalists, a segment of people in the media industry, it's afforded a kind of uh, financial stability that hadn't been accessible for a very long time. I mean, it's almost... uh, a revelation. If you talk to people, maybe people, even people who are a little bit older than me, like Matt Taibbi has talked about this. I know definitely. Um, for as long as he's been a journalist, he said, you know, there's, there's always been like a element of precarity to it in that you don't know like when the next shoe is going to drop in terms of your publication, you know, doing mass layoffs or well, I've actually personally been laid off when I did a, which in hindsight is now sort of a bizarre interlude in my own life, but that was actually, a young Turks employee for a year and a half. Um, and I got laid off and, you know, it's probably for the best ultimately, but you know, it's sort of a disorienting experience. Um, and what Substack has really done, it's, it's, it's um, basically solidified a model that makes journalism uh, sustainable, at least for a subset of journalists who have something unique to say that isn't just parroting of whatever the mainstream consensus is. I don't think Substack, and there are some people on Substack who got, some of these pro deals and stuff who don't seem to offer anything of that's novel or, of, or unique. And, and, uh, as far as I can tell, aren't doing particularly well, uh, which to me is predictable. Um, mm-hmm. because you know, what the, what subtack incentivizes, and this is why people on subtack get accused of like contrarianism or something, but really I think it, it what it incentivizes is original thought and original perspectives and original reporting, hopefully, uh, and uh, if you can provide that, then there's cl- there's clearly a um, a large audience for it, and they're willing to pay. And that's good. 
Um, so I think that's a point of hope for some people in the journal industry. But it does if you're able to fashion a sustainable model on the basis of Substack. It also produces a lot of grievances amongst your peers and colleagues who can't do it themselves and therefore take out their anger on you. And I'm yes. not saying that I have experienced this, but maybe others uh, have. And uh, well, yeah, I have experienced it because, you know, people are just very, uh, very aggrieved and, uh, you know, they step your game this, up. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's not my fault. I mean, look, if you produce something of value and then hopefully you could eventually get someone to pay for it. But until then, I mean, don't take it out on me, bro. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, I think uh, I, it, there's is sort of a renaissance now, like in these just the past two years of these new outlets that have different revenue models, different uh, financial models overall, and are able to subsidize or, or facilitate uh, journals in a way that just was never attainable before. Um, and so I think that's good. Um, but a lot of journalists don't think it's good because, again, they don't add anything that is unique or of novel value and thereby are not beneficiaries of this. And uh, so then they detect something sinister in like the crowdfunding or subscription based philosophy uh, because they can't like, get a sinecure out of it, which they probably could have in years past. Yeah. Uh, from, from like the, from some media outlet that was, you know, uh, pumped up on. Uh, you know, uh, VC funding or something, and then you know, the bubble burst, and now they're. Yeah, I mean, this is you know, driving for Uber or something. <laughs> That's a much better incentive model for the consumer specifically. I mean, you have a you have a meritocratic system in the form of Substack arrive, and hopefully it increases the quality. Yes, there may be a bunch of butthurt peers of yours who are mad because they can't uh, amass the same kind of attention and, and revenue, but uh, you, you play this over iterations over the next 5, 10, 20 years, and hopefully you'll have a, a wide variety of very high quality um, individuals providing very good journalism. And Yeah, and one of the, so oftentimes the grievances will be sort of dishonestly formulated as like them bemoaning the lack of editorial standards at Substack or something. It's like so. It's it's not that they're jealous, or it's not that they envy having this sustainable financial model, which they do. It's that they're just have just sincerely uh, lamenting the lack of editorial standards on Substack, which is like just a total joke. Number one, I actually do happen to have an editor on Substack that you know I arrange for, and so there is editorial oversight on on Substack. Um, I mean, people can publish on it also if they want, with no editorial oversight. It's true, but. Most of the high, the kind of more high-profile people do actually have editorial control, and in some cases, more editorial oversight than they even had at their more traditional outlets. Um, and on the other hand, I, I don't know, I don't, I don't know anybody at Substack who's like peddled security state conspiracies or tried to like trigger a war or um, <laughs> uh, engaged in mass fraud on the scale that. Like any everybody from the New York Times to NBC has done over the past, especially twenty years, on issues ranging from Iraq to to, to the two thousand sixteen election to to RussiaGate to um, even aspects of COVID, arguably. So, um, if there's any, if, if you have concern about the insufficiency 
of editorial standards, they ought, those concerns ought to be directed at the more traditional and serious outlets, more so than Substack, which, if anything, is a much-needed counterweight to the, the, the lax editorial standards of the rest of the media. Yes, it's desperately needed. I mean, so this is why I have this podcast and my newsletter because I was just reading the way this is a Bitcoin podcast. It started as one, but it's it's morphed into a, a more wide ranging set of topics, including the ones that we cover today. And but like I started this because it's just like reading how the New York Times and Bloomberg and others were writing about Bitcoin and just being in the industry and understanding it much better than any of the journalists at those outlets writing about it. I was like, all right, I'm going to go out there and provide an alternative perspective on uh, Bitcoin, how it's being covered in the mainstream. Because I know due to being close to this industry that what they're saying is objectively false. Um, and that, I mean, that's just, again, the internet is our generation's Gutenberg press and it's going to, to completely obliterate the, the models that existed in the industrial age in terms of media, not only media, but other types of business models as well. And we're just in that crazy inflection point and the volatility that comes with it. And, and people don't like the, the pace of change and the acceleration of change. Well, you know, it, it was more of all from like 2002 to 2016, roughly, it was much more volatile than it is now. I mean, that was the period when you had mass closures of newspapers that had been bought up by private equity firms uh, because Google and Facebook were taking away all the ad revenue, um, where you know Craigslist supplanted the classified section of newspapers, where these uh, online media outfits couldn't figure out really how to monetize their quote-unquote content at all. And it was far more precarious. Like I, I, was, I was trying to be a journalist at the time, but I always had to supplement it with odd jobs um and uh you know you were lucky if you got 150 dollars for an article um that wasn't that long ago um you know now we finally got to the point where there actually is a bit more stability at least for a certain segment of the industry where they can if they have the wherewithal uh and if they have again something new to or valuable to add they can more much more easily uh formulate a sustainable financial model for themselves. So there actually is greater stability now than there was like I would probably, you know, five or six years ago. That's um, a very good point. As the, this like, you know, crowdfunding model kind of matured. As, I mean, it was around, it was around back then, but it was a little bit more haphazard and it wasn't sort of clear how it best could intersect with, you know, journalism as such. Uh, and I think that, you know, people are definitely have a b- better uh, sense of that now. So ironically, there's probably less volatility now, at least in the, the, the media industry. But the ones who are left behind, the ones who don't benefit from the new uh, paradigm, are the most angered by it and the most uh, inclined to lash out angrily online. Uh, modern day Luddites. It's uh, understandable. And hopefully this will just be a, a, a blip in this transition. Do you worry about Substack, whether it be directly or via payment process, or succumbing to censorship. Um, you think the pressure from the state you know, uh, will be it, such? It's it, it's occurred to me, but um, you know, I had I had preliminary discussions with Substack 
executives before joining um, in March of 2021. And uh, based on those discussions and discussions that they have with others whose judgment I trust, um, I was pretty confident that they wouldn't succumb to the same pressures that others may succumb to because like embedded in their very ethos was a resistance to capitulating to like demands for censorship or demands to intercede in the editorial processes of writers in the platform or to otherwise meddle. Right. So um, uh, it wasn't like a Facebook or a Google where that wasn't like any kind of founding principle for them. And so they became far more censorious over time. Right. Um, Now anything's possible. Uh, I'm sure it's uh, I'm sure it's uh, within the realm of possibility that they could eventually change their tune and capitulate, but I don't see much indication of that. And I also think that there was a round of consternation against Substack last year. It was like, uh, I want to say it was actually around when I joined, um, perhaps coincidentally, March to like April of 2021, where the whole, there was this idea, I don't know if you recall it, but uh, that, uh, I mean, Baron was, was writing this on dangerous it. progenitor of like anti-trans. Uh, oh yeah. I remember that. Um, yes. And like, there was like a, mini movement of uh, an exodus of Substack writers who couldn't no longer countenance this harmful anti-trans, you know, bigotry that the subs, the uh, platform was subsidizing. And that kind of passed um, partially because I, th- I think savvy moves in the part of Substack to diversify its author roster. So they brought on a lot of kind of normie liberals. Um, like, you know, that guy, Aaron Rupar is on there, I think, or an Alex Perrine or people who, you know, it would be absolutely absurd to accuse them of uh, this kind of harmful anti-trans contrarianism, whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, cause there's, they, they have a lot of money and they dangle it in front of people and they, those people took it and yeah. you know, good for them. If that's the, that, that was the tactic that they took to uh, sort of entrench their, their station in, in the industry. But I think, I think Sebek has taken the right steps to make it to that. I, I find it hard to believe that they would uh, kind of renege on their, assurance that they gave to me and others that they are not going to um, be taken by these, uh, you know, intermittent demands that they exert undue control over their, their writer base. Good. Cause it's desperately needed. I mean, seeing what's going on with Twitter, YouTube, I think that, would, that would ruin their, I mean, that people would flock away from it because, yeah. because the thing is, especially if you have a large enough following, I'm not saying I'm a, a massive following, but I have a large enough following that people are gonna like it's sort of portable. Like people will follow me wherever I go because like especially over Substack, like I own the email list for one thing and I um like that's not proprietary to Substack. Yeah. So I could just take that and go someplace else and you know it might be a little bit of a of an adjustment, but it would probably be workable. And so I think Substack has therefore an added incentive to not capitulate because you know a Substack 2.0 could pop up. Um, so as a competitor, and they don't want that. Might be building one, not because I think they're oh, going to censor. Okay. I think they're. I think they're going to be forced to. Um, I think. Yeah, I mean, the censorship's really? only going to get worse from here. Um, yeah, I, I think they'll oh. use the payment processors. I think they'll get Mastercard and Visa to. Well, I think. Um, but the the, the payment process for, for Substack is uh, Stripe. Stripe right? Yeah, or and, Stripe, and, and and they seem like they're pretty. I mean, I don't know as much about Stripe, but I. Get the impression that they're also they're all based so they're all to, yeah, yeah yeah but like if it can be shut down people like you are 
are talking on it. Again, I could be wrong, but I just think it's going to get to a point where things from an inflation perspective, World War III perspective, uh, like the emperor wears no clothes, it's become glaringly obvious and they're going to push every button they can to try to control the narrative. Uh, Substack and payment processors being one of them. All right, well... Uh... Um, and that I sounds be, that sounds sort of foreboding. I hope you're wrong, but I leave open the possibility that you are sadly right. I'll, I'll try to prepare accordingly. I'm not trying to like show my project, but I think um, uh, there's way like that's why again Bitcoin, when it comes like integrating Bitcoin into your monetization model, makes a lot of sense to me. We do it here. Um, I built my website newsletter on Ghost, um, and I self-host yeah. that um, and. Uh, yeah, okay. you know, when I first started crowdfunding in 2016, it was the first time I really experimented with it, and I did it in a, like an ad hoc way, like I mentioned before. And it was just because, you know, I had kind of been bat- reticent to do it because there was something gaudy about it, like back then, like the asking people online for money, like that's sort of rude or something. Um, you provide value. Was, you provide value, yeah, Michael. But I, but I did it. It was fantastically successful. And at the time, it was mostly GoFundMe, but I also had a Bitcoin option, right? So I had people I just you know, basically started a wallet and people sent me Bitcoin. Um, and it wasn't anything fancy. It was just, you know, yeah. uh, providing that as an option. And people, a lot of people, people uh, seized upon it. I still have that wallet if people want to find it and send me money, you know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I guess I, you're right that I don't have it as fully incorporated into like the main thrust of my model which is through just subscription via Substack and so forth. Yeah. What are your thoughts on Bitcoin? Might as well ask a question. Yeah. You know, (laughs) I fear that I don't have intelligent enough thoughts to share on a Bitcoin oriented podcast and I'll end up looking stupid. I mean, I think it's... No, what do you think? What do you think? You don't have to like make a (laughs) declarative statement about whether it's good or bad. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I, I have some Bitcoin, um, yeah, not a huge amount by any stretch, but enough that I'm, like, aware of it to for my own like, personal portfolio, I guess, and I'm not a financial genius or anything, but I did notice that the uh, value uh, has uh, vastly appreciated since I first started accumulating it, um, and that seems notable. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, I think the uh, the sort of infle- reflexive uh, antipathy that a lot of people on the left have toward it doesn't make much sense because it seems to me that there could be like a pretty feasible case to be made that like Bitcoin could actually advance certain like left wing ideological ambitions just in terms of you know disentangling from the uh, main uh, capitalist institutions that control the money supply um, and allow for like more kind of autonomous kind of communal projects potentially. Um, I'm sure there are plenty of people in the Bitcoin world who have weaved theories that are much more elaborate and uh, well substantiated than I, I have here. But um, that's just sort of been in my, my instinct in that I'm, in, I'm skeptical of this um, knee jerk uh, hostility that a lot of people seem to have it on the basis of what seems to be mostly their antipathy for the types of people who have Bitcoin. Like it's just, mm-hmm. oh, you're a Bitcoin guy. So like you're this Reddit gamer guy in his like 20s or 30s who 
you know, I don't know, is against the woke culture or something, and therefore you, your views on cryptocurrency must be presumed wrong. Yes. Uh, I think that's like, it's an idiotic way to, to look at the subject. Bitcoin is for everybody. It's for enemies. I, I'm one of those 30-year-old dude bros wearing Vans who likes Bitcoin <laughs> a lot. But uh, How old are you? 30. Um, okay. yeah. you're, 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 right, you're right in the sweet spot, though. Yes. Like you're yes. who they hate. <laughs> they they hate me, uh, but it's hilarious. Bitcoin open source protocol. Anybody can join in, in terms of fairness, accessibility. Um, and yeah, there's like an egalitarian yes, it's uh, quality to it. Yeah, I actually think it's like, a, like if you want to talk about like ways to defeat, if you really hate Putin, what you should do is like champion Bitcoin, and you you make it so um, his citizens have the ability to access this free open network and they can undermine them from within. Um, well, wasn't there, what, didn't, didn't somebody in the Russian government make the statement recently that Bitcoin will be now accepted to purchase like energy exports? Yeah. Do I have that right? Yeah. So that's the end of the US dollars reserve currency of the world right there. The petrodollar system uh, is in the process of being replaced. I mean, it, it, yeah. I mean, so that's talking about censorship. Like the US government with this via the sanctions um, right after what Justin Trudeau do, did in Canada, um, essentially shot the dollar in the head where it's like, oh, everybody on the international stage is like the US and the G7 countries can just freeze our, our foreign reserve assets and, and not allow us to access them to buy goods. Like, it's untenable. We cannot trust this system anymore. We'll probably try and do gold back ruble, gold back yuan, a central bank digital currency of their own. But at the end of the day, what all these countries are going to realize is that the only fair and uh, obvious solution to this is Bitcoin, where the US government can't shut it down, Russia can't shut it down, China can't shut it down. Um, it just exists as a protocol that anybody can anchor into. Um, and there's there's nothing any one of those individual actors can do to stop it. And this over time, people will come to realize is actually probably the best way to do things where you don't have this dick-flexing proxy war over um, controlled monetary systems and commodities. Yeah, and I'm open to those arguments. Again, I don't have a sophisticated enough understanding to opine intelligently, I don't think, but I'm not going to reflexively dismiss them out of hand because they're being articulated by a guy who's 30 and wears fans. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh... It's uh, blonde hair, blue eyes, a wife, a child, um, likes to live by Christian values. I'm, I'm checking all the boxes here. Uh, you're, well, you're also gorgeous. Probably <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Disadvantage. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. You're uh, you're gorgeous as well. You're you're a gorgeous I know, individual. I hear, I, I hear it all the time. Everybody on Twitter agrees. <laughs> no, you're honestly you're you're. I mean, blown. I don't know, you to think I've been blowing smoke up your ass this whole interview, but I th again, I've been a big fan of your work for many years now, going back to the mid 2010s, and you've been an ardent um, purveyor of truth in my mind, which is hard to find these days. And I, I'm extremely thankful that individuals like yourself exist to, to help bring these other perspectives and nuanced views to a world which people are just being hammered with propaganda on all on all sides. Well, yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, what can I say? That's um, among the best compliments I can get. So hopefully I'm doing something right. You are.
You are. Um, keep it up. I hope we can do this again. I don't want to keep you too long. I know it's getting late there and you've got things to do. Yeah, yeah. Let's do it again sometime for sure. Yeah. If you're ever uh, in Austin, Texas, let me know. We can do it in person. That would be cool. Oh, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll, I do plan actually to come to Austin at some point in the near future. So I'll, I'll hit you up. Hit me up. Let me know. Um, Michael, where can we find out more about you, your Substack? What's the, uh, what's the link there? Yeah, mtracy.substack.com. Go to my Twitter, twitter.com slash mtracy. Uh, everything's pretty much there. And yeah. Hell yeah. Keep fighting the good fight, dude. Um, appreciate your time. This was awesome. All right. I enjoyed it. Godspeed. All right. Peace and love, freaks.